Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. We have been singing, Lord and God, that you are our hope, that Jesus is our hope in a dark world. And we pray we'd see that perhaps more than ever before as we see where this world is leading. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do please turn in your Bibles to Revelation uh, chapter 18, page one two. Four, six, as we continue in this series looking through uh, the book of Revelation. I've lost everything I ever lived for. That's uh, what a man in his late 40s said to me just before Christmas uh, about 10 years ago. I heard him sobbing as I walked through the church I was working for in London. Uh, I went over to him. He was at the back of the church. I went over to him and I told him that I'd worked on the staff at the church and out poured his story. He told me that the night before he'd been at a work Christmas party, had too much to drink and said things to his boss and to his colleagues that he really shouldn't have said. He told his colleagues uh, uh, confidential information and when his boss challenged him and told him to go home, he told his boss what he'd always thought about him, which wasn't very positive. And now, the morning after the night before, he turned up to to work and been sacked. I've lost everything I ever lived for. What am I going to tell my wife? We'll never be able to keep up the mortgage payments. We won't be able to go on the holiday we put a deposit down on last month. The children have private education and the fees are huge. And I've got a company car and I've lost that too. I'll never get another job like this one. I've lost everything I ever lived for. It was a desperate conversation. There was the the folly of a grown man getting drunk and blabbing off. But as I thought about the conversation, there was a a deeper folly that he lived for something that he couldn't be sure to keep anyway. And now it was all gone. And although the circumstances and details may be different, there are so many people who've lost everything. In the mid-1990s, there were those who invested heavily in Lloyd's, the insurance giants, and lost the lot. In 2008, thousands of investors lost everything due to the fraudulent actions of Bernard Madoff, who literally made off with all their money by operating the largest Ponzi scheme in history. And in these past turbulent years, how many have lost everything as banks have collapsed all around the world? But it's not just financial investments that can rob us of everything. Sadly, in the last 20 years of pastoral ministry, I've seen a number of people who've had affairs and lost everything. The wife that loved them, the children that trusted them, the house they'd worked for, the reputation they'd built up, all gone because they wanted another woman. Revelation chapter 18 is a chapter that is here to warn us not to invest our life in a way that will see us lose everything we ever lived for. Very simply, and I know that a lot of people have struggled with the book of Revelation, but it's really very simple this week. Very simply, this chapter tells us that if we live for the wrong things, one day we will lose everything we ever live for. And in this chapter, the wrong things to live for are summed up in one word, the word Babylon. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, fallen fallen is Babylon the great. In the book of Revelation, Babylon is a city and a prostitute. Babylon represents the alternative to God. Babylon is the alternative city to the the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth that is promised to all God's people at the end of this book. 
And Babylon is the prostitute, the sordid and grubby alternative to being the pure bride of Christ. And the picture changes throughout these two chapters. Babylon is the city, Babylon is the prostitute. The image changes, but it's always the same. It is the world in opposition to God. Uh, One word of caution as we look at this chapter. As we think of Babylon, the city, we must not look for identification, but rather equivalence. Let me explain what I mean by that. A number of people make the mistake of identifying Babylon with one city or empire in history. You can read commentaries that will tell you that Babylon is first century Rome, or it's the papacy, or it's, or it's Babylon in the past, or it's a great city of the present, or, or a great city that will come in the future. But once you've identified it as one city, it can be nothing else. Now, don't go for identification. Rather think of equivalence. Once we think in equivalence, we can see that Babylon is equivalent to things in every age and every society. Babylon is the world without God. Babylon is any world power and government that is set up in opposition against God. So it is Tyre in the past and Babylon in the past and Rome when it was being written. And it's London and Washington and Sheffield and Fulwood. Babylon is the world against God. But she is also an adulteress. Babylon is a city which offers so much, which is so alluring, seems so very attractive. She's a prostitute that seduces us into thinking that what she offers is very exciting and thrilling and satisfying. Look at the end of verse 3. Babylon offers wealth and a luxurious lifestyle that will turn the head of the most self-controlled man. She is so attractive, but eventually she'll rob us of everything. And because every day of our lives we live in Babylon, in a world that has rejected God, so every day we run the risk of being seduced by her. We gaze at her every time we turn on our television sets and open a magazine and look at the adverts that offer us a life of ease and luxury and comfort and opulence and success and wealth. That's Babylon. Babylon is is very attractive. The prostitute is very attractive. So don't think so much of the hooker on the street corner, but rather the private escort, the well-presented high-class prostitute. She is sophisticated and beautiful. She seems so very attractive, but don't listen to a word of it. For Babylon is doomed, verse 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Fallen, uh, the tense of the word here is, is what Richard Buse calls the prophetic past. Here is a, a prophetic voice, someone able to proclaim something in the future as if it has already happened because it has been declared by God that it will happen and so it's as good as if it has happened. Do you see the point? The prophetic past, fallen. It is a future thing. This is talking about the day when Jesus will come finally, once and for all, wrapping up history, But it's so certain, you can say it's already happened. Fallen is a a sentence, if you like. It's the description, the guaranteed outcome of the world in rebellion to God. She will fall. God has declared it. She is doomed. She's as good as fallen already. And so, and here's the key point for us today. Verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Come out of her, my people. This is a chapter, it's very straightforward. This is a chapter warning us, warning God's people to come out of Babylon, 
But if you're still with me, you'll be asking this question. How can we come out of this city? If this city represents the world in rebellion to God, how can we flee it? For it's all around us all the time. Where can we flee to? Well, then this is about my heart not being set on Babylon. That's the point. This is a warning not to be entangled in Babylon's sins. 4 verse 4, if we live for the things Babylon stands for, we will receive the punishment Babylon stands to get. If we live for the things Babylon offers, we will, on the final day, end up saying the words of regret, I lost everything I ever lived for. And listen, this is a very real warning for you and me. That's why it is a warning to the people of God in verse 4. Just think back to the people who first read the book of Revelation. We know a lot about them because we've read chapters 2 and 3 a long time ago, admittedly, but let me remind you. These people were Christians in churches in what is now Turkey, uh, Christians who were in the minority, and Christian churches that faced all sorts of pressures in Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira. All this is in Revelation 2 and 3. You can look at it later. In Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira, the churches were being ruined by false teaching. In Smyrna and Philadelphia, they were being persecuted even to the point of death. And in Sardis and Laodicea, they were sleepy and lethargic in their Christian lives. They were wealthy Christians who had real testimonies about Christ, but they were so wealthy they didn't feel the need to trust Christ every day for their everyday needs. Those are the three categories, really. False teaching coming in, people being persecuted to the point of death, and some Christians just kind of wealthy and lethargic and sleepy as Christians. And so all these churches needed to hear this call to come out of Babylon. For those being persecuted for Christ, following Jesus made life a struggle every day. But that struggle would end by not making Christ everything. Then they could start to live for the world, to blend in. That would give them the double benefit of not being persecuted and even being able to enjoy the luxuries of this life. Do you see the temptation for them just to just to go a little bit quiet about following Jesus. For them, lying in Babylon's arms must have seemed a very attractive option. Uh, For those facing false teaching, the struggle to keep fighting against the liberalism that was so wrecking the churches would have made them weary. It would have been very easy to stop battling against that false teaching, to accept it exists and just live with it. Indeed, that had already happened in Thyatira, where we're told they tolerated the teaching of a false prophet. It wasn't that they weren't believing the right things, they were just tolerating this false teaching. And so they were allowing Babylon to seep into the church. And in the wealthy churches, they had already begun to embrace Babylon. The comfortable wealth that they had meant that they no longer really had to rely on Christ. Babylon was already giving them so much. Coming out of her would be a struggle, particularly for the church in Laodicea. You see, embracing Babylon is very subtle and we barely notice that it's happening I've, as I've read this this week, realised I've been struggling with this for the last few weeks every day. Every day for the last few weeks. It would be so much easier to go for an easy life. It's what's been going on in my head for the last few weeks. No, I'm not thinking of giving up the Christian life. Just backing off a bit. Opting for the easy option, the easy life. Not contending against false teaching in the Church of England and in this very diocese. 
not working such long hours that are leaving me exhausted and drained and giving me little time with my family, choosing a life of relative luxury and leisure, ease and effortlessness, that's become more of a possible lifestyle since we've inherited some money. We could do some other things. And you all feel the same pull towards Babylon. It's hard work speaking out for Jesus, speaking up for Jesus, telling your friends about Jesus, giving money to support his work. It's tough when we see colleagues get promotions because they don't have the morals we have and because they'll give all their time to their career and because they haven't rocked the boat in work. See, it's not even about giving up the Christian life. At least it doesn't start that way. Just being a bit quiet about it, knuckling down, never causing a stir. It's a win-win situation to be a quiet Christian, isn't it? No, says this chapter. Live for the world, get seduced by Babylon, and in the end you'll lose everything you ever lived for, so come out of her. That's what this chapter's about. And by the end of this section of the book of Revelation, we should be convinced that we don't want to live for this world. Be sure, verse 5, her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Believe that, verse 6, God will give back to her as she has given, pay her back double for what she has done, mix her a double portion from her own cup, give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. See, Babylon is not a good place to run to. Babylon is not the woman to get into bed with because Babylon will fall and is facing destruction. Not that Babylon believes that for one minute. End of verse 7. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen. That is very interesting because, of course, God has been set up as king. Here is the alternative. I sit as queen. I'm not a widow and I'll never mourn. See, the world thinks it's never going to end. I sit as queen, I'll never need for anything. The queen doesn't need for anything, does she? I'm not a widow, I I have no need to be sad over anything. I will never mourn, she thinks she's indestructible. But recent events should have told us how utterly deluded she is. Just think about the recession we're in. I was hearing someone say this week that back in the 70s when he was at university, the economists were saying we'd never again suffer a recession like that of the 1930s because we know how to manage the economy. We know how to guard against anything like that ever happening again. That's what he was told when he was at, uh, studying economics at uni. Look back through history and the great superpowers of the world. They all thought they were indestructible. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire. Where are they now? The world is so full of itself. That's verse 7. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I'm not a widow, I'll never mourn. But in one day, verse 8, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning and famine will come to her. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Revelation chapter 18 is talking about the final judgment of the world. But look at the things that have come crashing down, the things that seem so very secure and stable and certain in history. Look at those things and see that in one day it can all change. In one day a banking collapse can begin that has had catastrophic implications all over the world. Now that's not primarily what this is about, but it should show us that this is not exaggerated. And that the world is not as strong and stable as invincible as we think it is, as it thinks it is. 
So don't live for the world. Don't be seduced by Babylon, for she will fall. And verse 8, in one day, it will all change forever. And when that day comes, notice that those who've lived for her will be mourning. That's what follows in this chapter. There are three laments from the kings of the earth, from the merchants, and from the sea captains. Let's look at them briefly and quickly. First, the kings of the earth, verses 9 and 10. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city of Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come. See, the kings of the earth, verse 10, are people who've gained power from Babylon. And with power came a life of luxury. You'll see that in verse 9. They're not just kings then, they are the people who have risen to the top in the world. People who have power and influence. And they lament at the end of the world because at the end of Babylon is the end of their position and status and influence. As Babylon falls, they become a a nobody. Then second, there's the lament of the merchants in verses 11 to 17. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Uh, For the merchants, if you see in verses 11 to 13, Babylon has been a place of trade. And Babylon has given the merchants, verse 14, you see it there, a life of riches and splendor. Because of Babylon, verse 15, these people have become very wealthy. They've become wealthy through getting into bed with Babylon. Verse 23 tells us that the merchants are the world's great men. They uh, travel first class, eat eat in the finest restaurants, have access to the best theatres and sporting occasions. You know, they, they basically live a wonderful life. No, they're not the people who have huge power and influence like the kings, but... Boy, do they have a good life. The world has been good to them, made them great. No wonder they mourn when Babylon goes up in smoke. The kings, the merchants, and then third, there's the sea captains in verses 17 to 19. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living off the sea will stand far off and so on. I've been struggling to find how they really differ from the merchants, but it seems they've not enjoyed the completely opulent lifestyle of the merchants, but they've done very nicely, thank you very much, all the same. Their life has been pretty comfortable. Verse 19, they've become rich through trading with Babylon. And so when the world is judged, these people lose everything, everything they've ever lived for. Position, pleasure, possessions, all gone with Babylon. Richard Bues, speaking of these laments, writes these words. Identify them with them, if you will, the rulers, the traders, the travellers. If in this life you lived only for politics, then assuredly your world will crumble around you one day. If money was everything to you, then you are going to lose everything. It is inescapable, he writes. Live for anything in this world and it's all going to go. And it will all disappear so quickly. That's what's so shocking for those who've lived for the pleasures of this world. Look at the refrain in these laments. Verse 10, in one hour your doom has come. 
Verse 17, in one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. And again in verse 19, in one hour she's been brought to ruin. When Jesus comes in all his glory to wrap up history as we know it, it will happen very quickly. There'll be no time to think, no time to repent. Not that these people want to repent. See, that is one of the striking things about these laments. Those who've lived for the world aren't sorry that they've rebelled against God. They're sorry that they've lost everything they ever lived for. Even at the judgment, they don't cry out for mercy from God, but they lament that they've lost everything. And make no mistake, they will lose everything forever. Verse 21, then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. Never. Verse 21, it's a very uh, vivid picture of Babylon disappearing, this huge millstone put around the world's neck, as it were, and thrown into this huge sea and sinking down. It's a, a picture of, a, uh, of Babylon disappearing like a huge sinking cruise liner as she goes down and the waters cover over her. So in an instant, it's as if she was never there. Listen to the refrain in these verses. End of verse 21. Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. And it's repeated. Verse 22. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpets, uh, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and drive never be heard in you again. Never again. What was once a vibrant, throbbing city is now gone without trace. A place that once pulsated with the sound of music and industry and wonderful relationships is now silent, all gone, and so quickly. Uh, Please, before we move on, don't misunderstand. This is not saying that the arts and work and relationships are bad. Far from it. Uh, In a few weeks' time, we'll, we'll see... The great contrast, Revelation chapter 20 and 21, uh, 21 and 22, I beg your pardon. Uh, the, 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 the new creation, the, the wonderful city of God, and all these good things will be in the new creation. Uh, we will see uh, the arts and work and relationships right there. That's not the point. It's not that there's something wrong with these things. Uh, no, there's nothing wrong with music. But the music in Babylon will go. And the thing that brings the music of the world under judgment is what is sung about. Who is sung about? And who is given glory through music? When we come to it, contrast it with the music in the heavenly Jerusalem. In the heavenly city, we'll sing the songs of the Lamb. Our music will be about him and about his salvation, and it will glorify him. And indeed, that is exactly what happens in chapter 19. As the final judgment comes in chapter 18, so the world falls silent. There's not a sound to be heard. Never to be heard in you again. But as John takes us into heaven, we go from the silence of the destruction of the world to the great sound of celebration in chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! 
Off the back of chapter 18, it might seem strange, as the world is destroyed and a stony silence falls across the planet, the soundtrack in heaven is the hallelujah chorus. That's the refrain in these verses. You see verse 1, hallelujah. Verse 3, hallelujah, the smoke goes up from her forever. Verse 4, amen, hallelujah. Verse 6, hallelujah, for our Lord God reigns. Just as we saw three groups lamenting the fall of Babylon in chapter 18, so here in chapter 19 there are three groups singing this hallelujah chorus. First says the great multitude uh, in verse 1. The great multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. He's condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of his servants. And we've seen this great multitude before in chapters seven, uh, chapter 7 and verse 9. They are all God's people from every language and tribe and nation. God's people around God's throne. They are singing hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And they are praising God. You see it for the destruction of Babylon, the great prostitute, verse 2. They are praising God also that his judgment is just and true. Seeing justice done is always a cause for celebration. Oh, we see it often on our television sets, don't we? Uh, when you're watching the news, people coming out of court after a miscarriage of justice has been rectified. Or when someone has finally been, sent been sentenced for an unsolved murder. As the innocent walk down the steps outside the court, the reporter thrusts a microphone under their nose and they rejoice in the justice that has been done. In the same way, God's people will rejoice on the day of judgment. The multitude then are singing the hallelujah chorus. Secondly, the heavenly creatures are singing it too. All they say, though, in verse 4 is, Amen, hallelujah. Yeah, amen. We agree with what God's people have just said. God should be praised for his salvation and his judgment. The multitude sing, the heavenly creatures sing. And third, God the Son, Jesus, is singing the hallelujah chorus in verses 5 to 8. You see, I think it's Jesus' voice in verse 5 that's coming from the throne. For back in chapter 1, verse 15, his voice is described as being like a sound of rushing waters. And that's the same sound John heard in verse 6. And so Jesus sings the hallelujah chorus. He says, verse 5, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. And he sings, verse 6, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. When God's judgment comes upon the world, God's people, the heavenly angels, and Jesus himself will be rejoicing. And you notice what Jesus himself rejoices over. He rejoices that finally the marriage, the great marriage that was promised from be the beginning of the world has come. The marriage between God's people, the bride, and the bridegroom, the Lamb of God, finally has come together. And as we look at that great marriage, we close by noting the contrast between chapters 18 and 19. See, we can go to the prostitute, Babylon, and chapter 18, verse 3, drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Or we can save ourselves for the wedding of the Lamb. We can make love to the world and chapter 18, verse 16, dress ourselves in fine linen, that is, purple linen and scarlet linen, colours of opulence and, and deceit. 
Or we can save ourselves for the wedding of the Lamb and chapter 19, verse 8, be dressed in the purity of Christ, wearing bright and clean linen. We can share in all the wealth and opulence of the great prostitute Babylon, but chapter 18, verses 4 to 6, it will result in judgment. Or we can save ourselves for the wedding of the Lamb, where chapter 19, verse 8, we will be given salvation. We can live for the world and in time lose everything. Or we can live for Jesus and in time gain everything forever. Chapter 18, verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So, verse 4, come out of her, my people. But that is so much harder than it sounds. I know the world doesn't really satisfy, that wealth doesn't last beyond the grave, that luxury is hollow. But I still find myself being drawn to these things, wanting them like a dirty old man who just can't stay away from the brothel. And that's where these chapters are so helpful. Because they spell out clearly for me where that lifestyle is heading. It's only leading to a load of regret and to losing everything I ever lived for. So how will we know if our heart is in Babylon or if we've set our heart on the heavenly Jerusalem and given our heart to the bridegroom Christ? Well, simply this, what song are you singing? When you think about the final judgment and the destruction of this world, what song do you sing? Do you sing a lament, sad to see this world go up in smoke because you love this world so much? Or are you singing the hallelujah chorus because you're rejoicing at the thought of the reign of our God and the justice of the Lord God Almighty and the salvation of the Lamb? If that's the song you're singing, then you can know your heart is in the right place. Let's pray together. We thank you, our Lord and God, for the wonderful clarity of your word. That although perhaps some of the images are a little bit foreign to us, we thank you that it's very clear what you're telling us through your word, the wonderful, gracious warning you're giving us not to live for this world, even though it seems so attractive, but to live for you, to keep ourselves for you and for that wonderful moment when bride and bridegroom are brought together. And so we ask you to help us collectively, together as a people here, to spur each other on to come out of Babylon and to live for the heavenly city that is to come. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.